This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. Now I'd invite you to turn right now in your Bible to Genesis 1. I'd also invite you to open that study guide. There's a lot of good things in it later today. Read the preface that I wrote when I was writing the study guide. And let's launch into what we're calling equipped, learning to apply the whole Bible, learning to apply the whole Bible. If you don't have a study guide, in fact, there's some folks right over here with them. Joel, maybe you would even walk around with a handful, and if somebody doesn't have one, they can just stick their hand up or get your attention, and you can hand them one. If not, uh, they'll be available throughout the week. We can get them to you, but we want everybody to have one of these study guides. Well, as we begin, I think this is the most important sermon series, certainly the best planned uh, that I've ever done. And so let's go ahead and pray together for God's help, guidance, and the work of the Holy Spirit in our midst. God, you are indeed a great God, worthy of all our praise, our devotion, and every bit of our hope. We pray that as we look at the big story of the Bible, your big movements, that you would expand our understanding, that we would know you in a deeper way. And God, we pray that you would teach us to apply, to obey all that you have commanded. For we are sure of your presence with us. Guide us, help us, Use this series to change lives. And may it be for us worship, edification, and may it be to you glory. I pray that I will say things that are good and right and true and helpful to these dear people. It's in the name of Jesus that I pray. Amen. Well, as a college sophomore... I had my first experience with the non-Western world. I was on a study abroad program, and our group was at a hotel in Istanbul, Turkey. The hotel had a beautiful breakfast room. It's like a sunroom, kind of like a, a greenhouse. It had glass on three sides, and the roof was glass as well, and so you had uh, a lot of sight lines. You could see a lot of the city from this balcony, sunroom, breakfast area. Something I had never seen before in Istanbul was a minaret, and they were everywhere. A minaret is a skinny tower. It's usually built above a mosque, an Islamic mosque. And it's where the religious leader goes to call Muslims to prayer five times every day. I'd never been in a place where you could hear the prayer prompts projected over huge speakers anywhere in the city. And everywhere you looked at the time for prayer, devout people stopped wherever they were and began their prayer rituals. While I was in Turkey, I bought a copy of the Quran at a Turkish bookshop. Muslims believe that the Quran was delivered by the archangel Gabriel and was written down by Muhammad. 
It's the foundation of the Islamic religion. And so I was reading a little bit of the Quran on the tour bus as we'd go around. It's my first time reading that book. Now pause that story for a minute. The semester before that in college, I took a class studying Hinduism. We read the Vedas in the Upanishads. Hinduism is different, very different from Christianity or Judaism or even Islam. Those are monotheistic religions. Monotheism means to have one God. Hinduism, on the other hand, doesn't teach quite as much, especially the Vedas, the very oldest of the Hindu texts, don't teach as much about God as they try to teach about the essence of life. And the essence of life is finding truth. In the Upanishads, the last part of the Vedas, they give wisdom and guide followers and adherents toward truth. Hindus believe that the Vedas were sort of revealed by a formless God, but that God is really not the, the focus. Truth and liberation is the focus of Hinduism. And the Vedas are understood not, not as much to be spoken as they are discerned by ancient human sages. The year before Hinduism, I read a book called Autobiography of a Yogi. It's about a man from India who came to the West, the United States, Los Angeles, as a spiritual teacher. And he believed that many of the world's prominent religions were just different versions of the same message. And they were all connected by a creative energy. And the purpose <coughs> of life <coughs> was to come to an understanding and connect with that creative energy and sort of self-realize. And when, when we self-realized, there would be a kind of awakening in us and we would be free from this present world and we would see things as they truly are. Sort of like waking up from a dream world that you've created. This teaching really took off, autobiography of a yogi, when George Harrison, the guitar player from the Beatles, was handed a copy and got really into meditation. If you remember the period in the history of the Beatles where they went to India to study Hinduism and meditation, transcendental meditation, it was because it started with that book. So go back to the hotel in Istanbul. Here I've read about New Age meditation trying to tap into that creative energy. About the enlightenment from Hindu, ancient Hindu sages. And I'm hearing prayers based on what an angel is supposed to have told Muhammad in the early 7th century AD. And I'm processing all of this out loud in one of our discussions one day when, when somebody, a friend, tells me a, a little parable. I hadn't heard it before, but maybe you've heard this little parable. It's a story about six blind men who visit the court of an Indian prince. And there's an elephant there, but the blind men have never encountered one before. And so they're trying to figure out what it is. But of course, they can't see it in front of them. 
And so one blind man goes up to the elephant and he touches its side and it's broad. So he says, well, this is, this is a wall. And another blind man goes to find the elephant's leg and he said, no, I can wrap my arms around it, but it's very wide. It's a tree. It's a big tree. And another one, a third guy, touches the trunk of an elephant and so said, no, this is a snake. And each one, there's six of them, in the classic telling of the story, each one says something different. And to end the confusion, the Indian prince comes in and tells them this is a big animal and that each one of you is only touching a part of it. And the supposed moral of that story is that with something that's so big and so complex is the idea of God or religion, people, all people are like blind men only knowing part of the larger picture. And the point my friend was trying to make in Turkey 20 years ago is that maybe all these religions exist because we don't have the full picture of God or reality. And that's a nice story, teaches some nice things about presuppositions and personal humility. But that story has some major, major flaws. And those flaws reveal why the premise of the story can't be true. For one thing, the story is told from the presence or from the point of view of an omniscient, omniscient narrator. The Indian prince can see and he knows exactly what the elephant looks like. Now the point of the, hum the story is the humility that the blind men learn, but it was always told by, some by someone claiming to know more than the others. So it undercuts its humility. A second flaw is that the blind men end the story satisfied with being wrong. Not one of them knew it was an elephant. If the story just kind of continued a little bit, not only would the blind men acknowledge that they were wrong, but they would want to learn the truth about the elephant. That's what they would want to know is to learn more. They'd have to say, I guess I was wrong. I need to know that it wasn't a wall or a tree or a snake. Tell me about this great beast. And then there's the biggest flaw of the story. The story forgets that revelation exists at all. How are the blind men enlightened? Well, the prince speaks. It's a story. So take it one step further and suppose the elephant could speak. Well, the men are standing there saying, well, I wonder what this is. The elephant just says, I'm an elephant. I'm a huge animal with a trunk and ears and a tail. And he tells them about his life. And he tells them about everything he likes and everything he dislikes. Well, that changes everything about the story, doesn't it? If the elephant speaks. In these 13 weeks of this important series, we're going to learn to read and study and apply the Bible and the central tenet of Christianity 
is that we don't have to do that blind. We don't have to grope around in the dark. We don't have to wonder about what kind of creature God is. Because in the Bible, he tells us exactly who he is. What he's like. And he tells us what brings him joy. The fact that God speaks changes everything about knowing and worshiping him. And and that's where the Bible begins. With God speaking. And so we're going to move through the big story, the main story of this sacred book. We've taken 13 big movements of God. And as we study them, we're going to see his plan for each of us and the entire world. But I, I don't want you to just listen to me teach these things. I want you to learn to read and apply the Bible yourself. I want you to feel more confident studying the Bible. So what we've done is we've paired these key passages of scripture with Bible study principles, skills. Every sermon contains passage of scripture into Bible study principles so that you become equated with the Bible and at the same time you're learning lifelong ways to study it on your own. The study guide's a big part of that. It's a tool. It's a resource. It's going to lay out all these things and even add to some of the things that's going to be supplemental to what I say in the sermons. So let's begin the big story of the Bible where all good stories start, where all good theology and understanding of God is done in the beginning. The book of Genesis is the first book in the Bible. If you are newer to the Bible, the Bible is actually a collection of books. It has a table of contents, just like a regular book. You can find Genesis 1 at the beginning of your Bible. And when I say Genesis 1, I mean Genesis chapter 1. These books, some of them are long, some of them are short. Some of them won't even take up a whole page, and some of them are many, many pages. And so there's a chapter number, which is the larger number that you'll see within the text. And then there's verse numbers. Those aren't part of the Bible. They were added later so that we can identify the places in the Bible that we're reading together. It's a means of locating scriptures. The first one is pretty easy. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. This is what the Bible says. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and a void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from darkness And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. God's power and authority here at the beginning are inescapable. It's natural to say that Genesis starts with nothing. But that's not quite true. Genesis starts with God. The Bible starts with God. At the beginning, he's already there. We're meant to see his presumed existence 
as self-sufficiency. In fact, he's the only one with self-sufficiency. He's the only non-contingent thing in all the universe. He exists on his own. And now we're about to find out that everything else that exists only exists because he says it should. Literally everything exists because he speaks it into existence. The prologue sets the stage, the scene, and then the word of God creates. First, there is light, and God saw that it was good. Repetition is important as you read through Genesis 1 and 2. In the first chapter and a few verses into chapter 2, ten times God speaks. And seven times, ten and seven are big numbers in the Bible, he looks at what his word has made and he calls it good. There is a rhythm to which God creates. Look at the back and forth. I put it next to each other in your study guide. Days one, two, and three, he creates light and dark, sea and sky, and earth, land. Days four, five, and six, he populates what he did on days one, two, and three. He populates them with light and dark are populated by day and night. Sea and sky by fish and birds. And animals, a man and a woman, are placed on the dry ground. And the man and the woman occupy a special place in the creation. If you move your eyes down to verse 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. It's the only bit of his creation that he says this about. To be made in the image of God means to be somewhat like him. And to share qualities with him. And to be separate and different. And even occupy a place above other created things. And to show us this, God gives the man and a woman a, a special stewardship over what has been created. They're to watch over creation. And to fill it with other image bearers through procreation. And we see that God is pleased with all this. But we get a little bit of a break in the repetition when he comes to humans. God has said previously that all of his works were good. He has put in the image bearer, or he has put image bearers into the midst of it, and then there's a slightly different nuance to what he says. Once people are put into the creation, he says, This, this is very good. Genesis chapter 2 begins with God resting from his work. It's a way of telling us that that phase, that kind of work was done. Genesis 2, the rest of it, is a little bit of an expansion of what was said in Genesis 1. So as we begin to study the big movements of God, what are we to make of this beginning? As we read what God has done, what should we read here? It's very modern to ask questions of process or technicality when it comes to the beginning of the Bible. Both Christians and people who aren't Christians, maybe some are even atheists, they believe there's no God at all. They want to argue over the beginning of the Bible. 
They say, what about the Bible and science? Or what about theology and evolutionary biology? The catch is those are the wrong kinds of questions to ask. When we read the Bible, one of the most helpful starting points with any Bible verse is to ask what the original readers and the hearers of these words would have thought when they heard them. Our best methods date this book of Genesis to a little over 3,400 years ago. There was more science being done than you might realize, but we can safely rule out evolutionary biology as a 3,400-year-old discipline. Evolutionary biologists were not the main audience of Genesis 1 and 2. This book was something that God first shared with a man named Moses shortly after God used Moses to lead a persecuted nation, we'll get to all of this, out of slavery under a foreign king. They were a bit like refugees. They're wondering if they would survive away from the only place that they had ever called home, hard as it was to live. And while they are no longer enslaved, they're vulnerable. We call this the wilderness wandering, and I'll tell you about that in a couple of weeks. And so they're wondering, are we ever going to have a place to call home again? Are we ever going to feel comfortable again? And here comes God saying, everything you see, I created. And I didn't need force or strength. You were previously enslaved under the hand of a brutal king with the greatest army in the world at the time. But I created everything that you see, and I didn't need any of those powers of the world to do it. I simply spoke, and it came into existence. The powerful nations of the earth all had a story for its beginning at that point. And they would name the great celestial bodies after their gods, and their stories almost all went something like this. A god of the sun or a god of the moon or a god of other elements would war against one another and our gods defeated the gods of the other nations. And so in a great battle, the earth was formed. And here it is. So we understand our existence that way. If you read these other accounts, you'll see a pattern of violence and disorder. It's chaos and it's war and it's struggle. But Genesis comes along and God says, no, 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 it was so different. It's calm. I'm not saying there isn't power. I'm not saying there isn't explosive power. It's spectacular. But God isn't fighting chaos and he's not battling rivals. He is calmly, sovereignly bringing order, light, peace, and he's calling it good and he's doing it through his word. That's what we're meant to see in Genesis 1. When we're in the midst of wondering, do we have a place? God says, I'm God and I bring order and peace. And I've created the kind of place that's very good. And I'll do it for you. Now the place won't stay very good. That's next week. When the Bible talks, though, about the word of God, 
creating through the word and God speaking, it means three related things. The first is, is what we see here. God speaks. His word goes out. The second thing the Bible calls the word of God is Jesus Christ. And the third thing called the word is the Bible itself. Spend the next few minutes, the rest of our time on the Bible as God's word. But before we do that, just do a minute on Jesus. He is called the word incarnate or the word made flesh. This is where one of the stories of Jesus' life The gospel according to John begins. It actually begins with a different perspective on the account of creation. If you're familiar with your Bible, you can go there. Keep your finger in Genesis 1. If you're not, just listen. This is John chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. In the beginning, back in the beginning, was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Already we learned something. We're in the beginning. John has chosen that phrase very much on purpose. And there is a word, and the word is God, and then the word is personified. He was in the beginning. We know this means in the beginning, before creation, if there's any doubt, before the events that we read in Genesis 1, because of the next verse. All things were made through him, through this personified word. And just in case you're not as clear on what it means when it says that all things were created, listen to how it goes on. And without him was not anything made that was made. That's clunky English, but it means that everything was made through him. And then it said in him was life. And this life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. And darkness has not overcome it. So not only do we have another perspective on creation. A further explanation of what this word of God is. But we also again, we're back in creation. We have the separation of light and darkness. Light is subduing darkness. But here in John 1, it's clarified that the light is not the light of the sun or the moon or the reflection of light from something else. The light is the presence of God, giving life and penetrating all that God creates. If you want to have true life, you will only find it in Jesus, who is the light of men, gives life and is the light of men. So the three uses of the word of God. And really quick, I'm hesitant to call these three ways. And let me just tell you why. We really just have two ways. There are two main ways today that God's word goes out. And so I I don't want you getting confused. Let me just explain why, why really it's only two. The first way is that God speaks and then things happen. And throughout the Bible, he speaks to people and, and he still speaks to people today. But he does that primarily 
He still speaks primarily through the two that I want to emphasize, the Bible and through Jesus. If you come to me and tell me that God is speaking to you, and then you tell me something that doesn't line up with the Bible and something inconsistent with the heart and the ministry of Jesus, I'm going to tell you something might be speaking to you, but it's definitely not God. So God can speak, but it's almost always done through the Bible and through relationship with Jesus. And so as long as we're clear there, we can move on. So God speaks where his word goes forth. God speaks where his word becomes a man. And finally, his word is in the Bible. Now, I want to be clear here. When I, when I say that the Bible is the word of God, I mean that the words of Holy Scripture, and this is what this series of messages are learning all about, I mean that the words of the Bible where rightly compiled, rightly translated, and rightly interpreted. We'll get to all that in due course in the series. Rightly compiled, rightly translated, rightly interpreted are the very words of God, and they are true without error, and they are to be prized, cherished, and obeyed because they bring with them divine authority the authority of God, the authority of the one creator. Authority is the natural implication of the Bible being the word of God. If it is truly God's word, then it only makes sense to read it and to study it and to ask God for strength to be conformed throughout our lives to its teaching. And these are not popular ways of talking in the world today. Saying that the Bible is completely true and authoritative will not only get you funny looks, but it will also bring backlash from people saying, there you go again, Christians, claiming to have cornered the market on truth. No, no, we haven't. Cornering the market is what you do when you want to grab everything for yourself, hoard it, personally and use it to manipulate other people. You back it into a corner so you can control it. We're not holding truth in the corner. We've put it out in the open, in the middle, so anyone who wants truth can have it. Truth is not and does not belong only to Christians. We give it away freely to anybody who wants it. I have never denied somebody who has asked me to tell them the truth. So the next question might be then, how do we even know if we have the right Bible? That's a good question. If we're going to learn to study and apply the Bible, we want to know what we have in front of us. And I want you to know these things. I understand that you take the Bible on face value, many of you. I understand that you've seen its power. But I also want you to know, if you're going to study the Bible well, you've got to know a little bit about that book that have, you have in front of you. Canonization is a term that's used to describe how the Bible was put together. Canon comes from a Greek word. It means a measuring rod or a standard. The Bible came together in two ways. First, we don't believe that people wrote the Bible as much as we believe that God led people to write it. 
I mean, the best way to say it is the books of the Bible were given by God and written down by people. The Bible consists of 66 books in total. As I said before, some are very long and some don't even occupy a whole page. The first 39 books are either called the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament. I'll tell you why in a few weeks. It makes up about two-thirds And their place in the canon of Scripture has never really been debated. They were well-known and long-established by the time the Lord Jesus was born. And he referred to them regularly, not just as a part of his teaching ministry, but also as an appeal to divine authority. Not even his divine authority. He would go often just to the Scriptures to teach truth. Because it was widely accepted and people understood that they were from God. Even instead of saying, I say so, he would say, well, the Bible says so. The Old Testament says so. Let me just give you one example of Jesus referencing the scriptures. This is in Matthew 5. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read it. Do not think, Jesus says, that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets is a way of referring. It's kind of a shorthand way of saying the Old Testament. That's what we would call the Old Testament. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota. Not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes. Now, this word relaxes is key to understanding. It was originally written as a Greek word that means to loosen or to undo or to dissolve. Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments... And teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. What Jesus is saying is because the law, again, another way for saying the Old Testament, is so important as the word of God that even letting go of a little tiny bit of its authority, even relaxing, loosening on it a little bit, even asking, is this really from God? is a serious matter in God's kingdom. And so for Jesus, the Hebrew Bible was unquestionably the very, truly inerrant word of God. Now the New Testament had many of the same criteria as were applied to Old Testament books, but that took much longer to come together. The three main criteria for assessing whether a New Testament book should be a part of the Christian Bible were to ask these questions. First, who wrote it? Everything in the New Testament was either written by one of the people that Jesus personally appointed to teach the earliest Christians or by a close associate of theirs who were passing on their teaching. Second question was, was it widely used among the first Christian churches. This happened a lot, for instance, with letters from a man named Paul, who's called an apostle, one of Jesus' personal teachers. There's a part of one of the letters written by another apostle, Peter, a companion of Jesus, where he both references how the churches had been reading from the apostle Paul, but says that the apostle Paul's letters are like the other scriptures. He equates the Apostle Paul letters with the scriptures that Jesus himself said should not be loosened. And the final question, 
Does it provide effective and consistent spiritual counsel? You're going to hear stories sometimes about books that didn't make it into the canon, but people will claim this is a vast conspiracy of the church to suppress different ideas, to hide internal truth and wisdom, and that's just simply not true. If you read other books that claim to be scripture, they might bear the name of an apostle or claim to be about something of Jesus. They are always so strange and inconsistent with everything we know from the more credible sources. They're always the least credible. They're always written much later than the other books of the canon. And they're always inconsistent with their teaching. Now, there were church councils, and there were discussions, and there was a process that this went through as the first Christians had to discuss. I put some of that in your study guide. You can look at it later. But I want to emphasize more than what these councils and these discussions take place, that the process for giving us the Bible, for making its way into our hands today, was rigorous. And it's consistent. We'll talk about more as we divide into this study. But the historical accuracy, the scrutiny, and the transmission protocols that the Bible has been subjected through throughout the centuries are truly remarkable. And they go well beyond any similar literature of even centuries later. The New Testament canon was closed near the end of the first century with the book of Revelation. There's nothing comparable that has been subjected to the standards for transmission as the Bible has. But I want to close back in Genesis 1. When you ask the question, what is Genesis 1, this word of God that goes forth and his presence in the beginning meant to tell us? And people would want to talk about all kinds of controversial and modern-day topics. There's a theologian who had a study center in the Alps in Europe named Francis Schaeffer, who would say in response to that question, well, let's not get into all those questions that this was never really meant to answer. It just kind of clouds everything up and it distracts us from the questions that really matter. And Schaeffer would ask, what is the minimum that we can be sure Genesis 1 and 2 are trying to teach us? And what is the minimum that they must be saying for the rest of the Bible to make sense? There are five or six things that I could get into. Let me just give you three. Number one, Genesis 1 says that God simply is. People want to look to the Bible for proof that God exists. In a sense, the Bible does offer forms of proof, but at the beginning, it is not at all concerned with proving the existence of God. He simply is. People want to make God try to prove himself because it gives them a sense of control, even power. They know they exist. They do. But if they can figure out a way, a way to make God prove his existence, if we can put kind of God on the defensive, then they think it kind of gives them a leg up on God. Well, God, I know I'm here, but you have to prove yourself to me. You see what it does is it inverts the natural order of things. I know that I am, 
but are you sure that you are? Prove it. Not only is God not interested in playing that little game, it doesn't work. He has always been. He always will be. He simply is. And that leads us into the next thing, the reason that God's not interested in playing this little game with you. God created everything else. Genesis must be saying that God created everything else. The Bible's consistent to draw a sharp distinction between God as creator and everything else is created. Or to put it out even more starkly, creator and non-creator. Though we are made in, in God's image, and we're given a very special place in creation as people who bear that image, that does not mean that we are much like God at all. Everything makes the most sense in the world when the relationship between created and created is honored in that order and things break down very quickly when the created tries to become or to usurp the creator. We worship God as creator because we are the created. When we begin to think that we are more than we are, in a sense, again, to challenge God's rightful position, that's when trouble comes in. God is creator. You and I are created. We worship him. He does not need or owe us anything. And finally, number three, that's where we started. God speaks. Genesis must be saying that he is a talking God. God is great. He has the power to bring everything out of nothing. It's a Latin term meaning that he created ex nihilo simply by his words. But he also chooses to, to relate to us in a way that we are familiar with. He speaks. We speak and he condescends and he speaks to us. And when he speaks, we're wise to listen. Again, I fully realize this flies in the face of much of what we are taught in the world today. We are taught that we create our own destiny. And we're to make the world our own. We're told that there's no right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. So let it go, let it go. I had to. That's the mantra of our age. The story about the elephant does have one part that's true. We are blind. And we're deaf. But Jesus opens the eyes of the blind and he makes the deaf here. He did it physically in his earthly ministry and he does it spiritually every single day. The way that we can see truth and hear him speak is to read what he has spoken in the Bible and obey it. The last thing Jesus said to his disciples in the first gospel in the New Testament, Matthew is that all authority on heaven, in heaven and on earth has been given to him. 
And therefore, we're to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and commanding them to obey all that he has taught, for surely he's with us. Folks, we don't do anyone any favors by letting them stumble around blind and deaf. Christians are those who have been made to see, not because we're great people. Next week we figure out we're not great. We've been made to see by a God who is great and forever gracious. We've done nothing to deserve our sight, but he gives it anyway. And he gives it to anyone who asks. So ask him to see. Ask him to obey. And ask him to help others to do the same. We might feel like blind men and women groping about, wandering in darkness, but into darkness, God shines light and says, I'm an elephant. Here is exactly what I'm like. See, and hear, and know. Let's pray. God, thank you for revealing yourself in the scriptures, for transmitting them and passing them down through the age of the church, and for putting them into our hands. May we take and read the words of God. May you teach us how to do that more specifically through these next messages. And may we obey all that you have commanded. Not letting one dot or iota of this word pass away. For it is all your very truth. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Our Savior Evangelical Free Church is a congregation located in Wheeling, Illinois. Our vision can be summed up in four words, building community, bringing Christ. To learn more about what these words mean, visit our website at osefc.org.